the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, we just want to mention we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, consider tossing us a dollar a month there, and if not, leave us maybe a nice review on iTunes. Today we have Eric Schmid and Rocco Gangle joining us. We'll be discussing, I think, primarily Eric's new book, Prolegomenon to a Treatise on Mathematical Structuralism, Constructive Computationalism, Deontologized Metaphysics of Hermeneutics, and the Synthetic A Priori. Welcome both of you to the podcast. We like to start off the episodes with the, uh, we could call it origin stories, perhaps. So I don't know, whoever feels, you know, most confident, feel free to to step up on the mic and share your little, you know, if you have a, maybe an anecdote or something from your life that sort of gave you that philosophy bug, you know, we'd love to hear about that. My name's Eric. I went to a math and science high school and um, I was doing like, I think I took like a lot of, yeah, I took a lot of AP math classes, like two AP math classes. And um, and then I uh, went to this math camp at U Chicago math summer camp, and that exposed me to like real mathematics. But then I went to uh, NYU Gallatin. The first year that I was there, I was exposed to like Lacan and uh, who else? Blanchot and Benjamin and like all of this critical theory. So then I basically decided to study continental philosophy, and uh, I still minored in mathematics. But uh, I have a long story, uh, kind of, I'm uh, 32 now, but um, I took a break from academics for a while to focus on like art world stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, and then uh, when I was in 2021, I started uh, doing a master's in pure mathematics at DePaul. And um, and actually, I I decided just this term to transfer to University of Chicago for their master's in computer science program, because I'm uh, interested in um, doing research on homotopy type theory. And homotopy type theory is at the intersection of, uh, let's say, uh, algebraic topology and, um, and also, uh, you know, these uh, type theoretic notions. So um, yeah, that that was my story, uh, and I'm I'm more looking to get into STEM now, but I love uh, philosophy. Excellent, excellent. And and Rocky, you know we we have a relationship prior to this, and and partly based on your translation of one of Laura Wells' works, The Philosophies of Difference, which you've also written a, a reader's guide to, and you've published a, a book on diagrammatic eminence, which is also on category theory, and you wrote one of the forewords to Eric's book, so. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your interest in philosophy and perhaps the intersection with mathematics and philosophy of math? Sure. Yeah. First, yeah. Thanks for inviting us here. I'm really, really happy to be here. Math for me was 
a bit of a passion when I was a kid. Okay. I really loved math. I was pretty good at it. I enjoyed it. I was excited by it. But high school basically killed that for me. Oh, yeah. And, and to the point where once I was in college, I went to a, a school that didn't require math in terms of requirements. I needed to do, it was a kind of 999 system, you know, three, basically three courses in humanities, three in social sciences, three in natural sciences and math. So I didn't take any mathematics in college. Right. Just was a religion major because I was a little bit burnt out on the philosophy department. I've always been interested in mysticism, the more kind of radical side of religion and, that, and the philosophical problems that plug into that side of things. So math fell off the horizon until I came back to graduate school and my PhD supervisor was uh, Peter Oakes at the University of Virginia. Okay. He's a scholar of Talmudic Judaism, Jewish mysticism, but also Charles Peirce. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. I, I see. Then I just had a little bit of interest in Peirce, but I was really excited to work with Peter. He got me very interested in Peirce and semiotics and Peirce's logic. And he was very happy to find a grad student who was interested in the mathematical side of things. He had actually been a, um, a math major, I think, in college. So that, that was part of his background. And so he and I worked together, like independent study projects, mostly on Peirce's logic. Mm -hmm. uh, and links to George Spencer Brown and right. just kind of fell in love with the stuff. And I was just very fortunate when I got the job where I am now at Endicott, my second year here, a new mathematician got hired, my friend Gianluca Caterina, and he and I became friends and um, started, basically made, a, made it a project to work through bad news being an event. Right, yeah. I've been wanting to get to that for a long time. He's Gianluca is, you know, very kind of open-minded mathematician. He's always interested in studying new things, even though his background is really in discrete dynamical systems. He was like, oh, this is forcing. Yeah, let's learn it. So we worked through Badiou, found it a bit hard to follow at times. So we decided to go back to the original work by Cohen. And so we worked line gotcha. through Cohen's original text over the course of about a year and a half. And that ended up becoming a, our first collaborative project together. And since then, now for the last 12 years or so, in collaboration with him and then also our friend Fernando Tomei in Argentina, we have a kind of ongoing research program linking category theory, Peirce's semiotics, Peirce's logical graphs, and, and some issues in like game theory. And I just find mathematics to be a wonderful sort of complement to a lot of the themes and problems in continental philosophy that the sociology of continental philosophy can be both wonderful. So it's filled with wonderful people, but it also can be very frustrating because it seems like you can have a lot of bullshit and it's yeah. hard to know how to call the bullshit bullshit because yes. you know what, you know, what's real, what's, what sticks and what doesn't. And when you can pull in some mathematics, right, there's a kind of beautiful simplicity and elegance to being able to prove a theorem. And when Eric reached out about his book, he asked if I would you know, take a look at it and maybe write a foreword. And I just found it to be really fascinating stuff and together, all kinds of materials from many different domains and, mm -hmm. and working with mathematics in the way that I have always kind of wanted to do myself in the sense of finding a playful material 
in the mathematics that enables you to work speculatively right. concepts of mathematics, both to be rigorous, to prove theorems and so forth, but also to let mathematical structures pass beyond themselves into the conceptual, into the, the speculative realm, just to kind of see what happens. The mathematics is an amazing tool for directing the imagination, right? It's a kind of, it takes us on a kind of witch's ride into abstract spaces that wouldn't be accessible otherwise. So yeah, I've just, I've been happy to see Eric now, I think, turn towards more towards computer science, where, you know, there are a lot of opportunities for doing that kind of work in ways that are, can be directly implemented. I always find it interesting that it's, it's only been just off the top of my head, and this is maybe loosely connected to, Eric, your, your shift to computer science, but what, it's been in the past several decades, I think, when maybe it was in the 60s when they first used computers to prove what the four-color theorem about coloring a, a map, right? And so this became kind of a, a new way of providing proofs that would take perhaps hundreds of thousands, if not millions of man hours to prove. Am I remembering this correctly? Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Using computers to provide a, a way of, of proving something that, that is seemingly insoluble just based on the number of calculations. I think the first was sort of if you only need four colors to, to color every sort of nation in a map and they and no two colors are, are gonna or no one color is gonna like border itself i'm not oh yeah that sounds similar to like uh the konigsberg problem with okay is, which is like what where topology was invented and then um i think um oh i i just i forgot to say uh thanks for having me on yeah the, uh, <laughs> of course of course and then um and yeah, it's been really nice talking to you on Twitter and just in shorthand and just chatting about stuff, you know. There's a lot of work being done. I actually am my uh my statement of purpose for uh U Chicago. I was writing about wanting to do work on um with uh proof assistants and like theorem provers. And yeah. there's a lot of work being done in uh Agda, cubicle Agda and um Cokes, where they're they're basically making mathematics consistent by having uh, the program will tell you whether or not it's a consistent proof or not. And then there's also like automated theorem provers, which will have like, you know, tree branches, which give you, and then, you know, Rocky and I were participated or were involved with this conference that happened uh, a week ago. And um, Giuseppe Longo was talking about how a lot of times with these, these tree branches for uh, theorem proving, that a lot of it ends up being nonsense. And like, you know, you think of like every possible path you can take, you know, like, do I, you know, from this axiom, where do I, where do I go, you know? And that's where the, I think the intuitive aspect of mathematics comes in, where you have to like know what a good theorem is to prove or what in your proof, there could be sometimes only one way to prove this, this proof. And you have to know, you have to know which, you know, if you're going to do a direct proof or a proof by contradiction or something like that. Yeah. Oh, or induction or something like that. Or I think that another um, reason why, you know, Ro Rocky, you're, you're so well suited to, to write one of the forwards for Eric's book is also the, the sort of prominence of Laura Wells work for some of what Eric is articulating with, whether it be the eliminative realism aspect or, you know, some of these 
these other aspects, because I think that's, that's the interesting thing, Eric, is the fact that there are not just a wide number of mathematicians, many of whom I had, I had to look up and hadn't heard of before, but, but there are also, there's also a lot of philosophers and, and sort of thinkers on that side that you bring together, Laura Well being one among them. And so I think that that part of marrying together, perhaps thinkers who aren't necessarily associated with something like pure philosophy of mathematics gives it an extra layer of interest for those who may not have specialties in math, like I'll say for myself or perhaps Cooper over here, it brings in a wider audience in that sense. And I left that open for either of you to, to, to respond to. But I think it's, it's fascinating on that score. And I think almost alone on the contemporary scene, Laurel has been willing to stick his neck out, particularly yeah. With respect to quantum mechanics, because the, you know there's obviously a lot of kind of you know mystical garbage that gets thrown around in terms of the you know the, the quantum mind and yeah. you know and ESP and and so forth. But I think the the interesting second order question is what is it about quantum mechanics that lends itself to those kinds of appropriations? So it's it's easy enough to stand back and just poo-poo that kind of thinking. But I think what Laurel has seen is that there's an interesting second-order problem at work, which is under what conditions can certain kinds of mathematics or, or various forms of, of formalism mm -hmm. lend themselves to appropriation in a hermeneutic setting? Right. In principle, a formalism is just a formalism. Math has no content whatsoever. Right. right. You want to push things all the way to the ground, you have systems of you know, formal languages with deductive rules, and you can construct elaborate structures. Right? But a structure is just a structure. And we, we inhabit a world of force, meaning, violence, death. Right? And the willingness to, from a unilateral position right, or non-position, to force formalism into the space of violence, death, beauty, meaning that we inhabit, right, is something that is a the kind of project that very few people are willing to work on, right? And in, in general, we find that we find the willingness to take those kinds of risks typically among artists, right, or among musicians. Some, you know, a, a right, composer like Zanakis, for example. And I think what makes Laurel's work special is to do that not in the space of music or not in the space of visual arts, but in the space of philosophy. Yeah, and even before the, the sort of quantum turn in, in, the, in the last decade, in the middle 80s and early 90s, he was already talking about this sort of non-Euclidean aspect, because that's kind of one of the, the reasons why I think he's moved away from non-philosophy to qualifying it as non-standard philosophy is precisely, you know, he was trying to elicit a kind of response, maybe a knee-jerk reaction, and got too much of it by, by calling his approach quote-unquote non-philosophy, as though the non were a negative or a, or, a, or a negating prefix, when actuality he is modeling it after the non and non-Euclidean, which isn't necessarily at all a negation of Euclidean geometry, but a suspension of one of its postulates, which I know that, Eric, you bring up in your work, at least the, the fifth postulate, so-called, right? The, the parallel yeah, lines yeah. postulate, and you work yeah. through that. So I think that there's something interesting there, too, 
with Laurel and the and the quote unquote non Euclidean that um, can also sort of be an early sign too of his willingness to sort of look because one of the fundamental questions he's asking is how is it that even something as strict as like mathematics can have these sort of revolutions, these mutations, as he'll call it, whereas philosophy is more and more sort of become more and more insular instead of having the kind of mutations that abstract art has or 12-tone serialism, et cetera. So the non-Euclidean metaphor for Laura Well is another sort of little mathematical or quasi-mathematical aspect to his work. I've always found sort of resonated with me in terms of the call for new writings and practices of philosophy. Yeah, I think the um, that uh, that's what interested me most. I think I found out about that through uh, Brassier's work, mm-hmm. his dissertation that he did uh, on Larwell. And uh, I was reading through some of that. And I'm no Larwell expert. I, my intention is to use everything in a synthetic way and to create this bricolage of different theories. And uh, I think that um, what interests me now is, yeah, I remember, actually, I did get this, this Larwell and non-philosophy book that I think Rocky had a, an essay in that book. Did you have an essay? In he that? edited it, right? Oh, yeah. right, right, Rocky, didn't you didn't you edit it or co-edit it? Julius Graven and I did one on um, basically Larwell and the humanities, superpositions. Oh, that, okay. I'm thinking of a different one. By John Onomalarka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been in, I've been in correspondence with uh, them and yeah. um, Mallorca, but I remember there was a like an essay in there that was really good about uh, axiomatic method, and that's that was my first encounter with Larwell. That essay on uh, axiomatic method and the hypothetical deductive method, and then also yeah, the suspension of I found out about the suspension through Brassier's work. I had a conversation with uh, this philosopher, Inigo Wilkins, on a podcast that I do a while ago, and uh, he made this comment where he he kind of chose Sellers over Larwell following mm-hmm. after Brassier. Right. And, but it's interesting that now uh, Brassier is now really into like the Frankfurt School and stuff. And, you know, I feel like he's always like a trailblazer with it in terms of like, that's just a, a side remark. The seller stuff, I tried to incorporate that into a later draft into the book, my book. And then there's a lot of thinkers, contemporary thinkers that are associated with sequence press and urbanomic. But I've been really getting into now, I personally, I've, I've been making this turn towards more of Reza's work, his later work, and uh, stepping away from, I mean, if you think of like Zalame's book was like 10 years ago, that was published in English. I'm interested in really um, artificial general intelligence now, and uh, that links up with the computer science stuff that I, I want to do. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I want to focus on um, machine learning and AI and stuff. So yeah, maybe then this book is only a, a prolegomenon, and uh, maybe there won't be a, uh, a treatise that will uh, lay down the formalized system for the kind of theories of um, topos and uh, etal cohomology that would be uh, in a algebraic geometry or something. Yeah, I mean, just to say one last thing on, on Laura Well, I do think that it's the one thing that you can see how you use him. I mean, I mentioned eliminativism, but there's also the the notion of the deontologization that you're you're sort of going for. And I think that that's part of what also Rocky was was going into with the use of quantum mechanics, you know, the stuff that that he and I are working on with non-standard philosophy and the translation of that of that 
pretty big work is one of the one of the sort of working theories is the is the way in which philosophy is seen as as kind of in the way in which 19th century physics or scientists thought of corpuscles right it's it's kind of this this macro structure that you know when applied or when thought through in terms of of uh the wave photon duality superposition etc cetera, etc cetera, that there's a way in which philosophy can be can i don't know if the word simplified is is the right word but it can be sort of shorn of its philosophical sense its ontological sense and you can inscribe within that sense or you can inscribe within the the non-philosophical rewriting the sort of cancellation and suspension of that sense which is in fact how he kind of defines what he calls transcendental axiomatics i'll let rocky sort of jump in here because again i don't really have a question just trying to suss out sort of the role of Larwell in in your work specifically for your call for the the deontologized metaphysics that's the aspect of of Larwell's more recent work that i find so exciting i think it only it only repeats what he's doing in the earlier phases of non philosophy it really isn't a radically new thing right. but it finds a certain language and a, cer- a certain restricted formalism that allows him to do it very precisely and, and clearly. But in a way, I think the deontologizing direction simply simply lives through the insight that goes all the way back to the neo-Kantians, at least, that it's formalism all the way down. Interesting. What we think is a concept of matter is really just another concept of form. And when we hear form, formalism, we're thinking about form, we always tend, especially in in the space of mathematics, tend to think of something abstract, devitalized, absent from matter, absent from affect. And I think that the turn that Laurel asks us to take is to realize that things like affect, consciousness, the body are themselves forms, and that that form doesn't have to be abstract. This turn in Laurel to, rather than a formalist materialism, which is the kind of thing you get in Badu, which is ultimately mathematizing right. to have a material formalism so that form itself is lived. And one recent thinker who I, I'm pretty sure doesn't, she might refer to Laurel maybe once or twice, but she's a film theorist. I think her first name is Catherine or Kristen. It's Bring Kama at MIT. And she has a couple books, but she has this great book on horror film called Life Destroying Diagrams. And that's the thesis of the whole book is that it, Eugenie, yeah, that's right, Eugenie Brinkema, and she basically argues that it's been a mistake in theories of horror film to see this kind of visceral affect of horror in the sense of, you know, the hairs standing up on the back of your neck, that that's the essence of horror. And instead, to think about a kind of radical formalism of the horror film where violence and terror and a, a kind of Bataillean uh, <laughs> yeah, sense of of sacrifice and communication is actually a kind of formalism. I think that that way of thinking about so many aesthetic phenomena provides a point of view that opens up all kinds of horizons, right? Rather than being sort of encased in affect or caged in by linguistic experience, phenomenological experience, right? By thinking it from the form outward, mm-hmm. it seems as if we. You know, th- this is the, the way that we can express this by saying rather than thinking that we're working on the models, which refer to the material reality, 
mm-hmm. work from the axioms themselves, right? Because there are always more models than we expect. The axioms, because they're formal, give us more. And we can always produce a model, but then we can always produce a different model, a non-standard model. And so rather than getting locked into the models, think from the formal axioms and think of the phenomenological dimension of experience as axiomatic rather than modeling, rather than representing. Just real quick, Eric, to, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll turn it to you. What, what, I, what I see Rocky explicating here reminds me of your turn to Petito's neurophysics. Do you want to say maybe if you see that link? There was some stuff that uh, Rocky said that I wanted to, there was just the, the thing about this material formalism and uh, versus like a formless materialism. I also wanted to say something earlier that Taylor said was that I had a hard time. I was trying to apply to the uh, the math department at U Chicago, and this professor was just saying that was telling me like over email that like that mathematicians are uh, indifferent or hostile to continental philosophy. And I, <laughs> and I think that's uh, you know obviously there's like you know like the Sokol affair and stuff. I'm personally I'm very open to it. Maybe this is particular in American academicism where they they have to maintain kind of strata and maintain the strata, the ivory tower or something, you know, and then, but then also I think Rocky was saying something about, now I forget, but uh, how to tell the thing is that's actually crucial to the, it's good that you uh, pointed that out. In mathematics, you have this transit bridge between the local and the global. And right. uh, and I think that in order to really situate, you know, any kind of Negrostani's term is a deracinated, you know, kind of subject, you need this turn towards Petito and the work in uh, neurogeometry. And that's a very, then this, this becomes akin to like different kind of micro or macro states that you're navigating between, uh, you know, or meso, macro, micro states, and you're, you're just navigating between these different levels of um, description or the link I was making with what Rocky was talking about moving from the axioms rather than say just merely generating more models was something that you point out where you write uh, the geometry of perception is constructed from sensory data that does not directly exemplify this geometry and I think that that kind of made me think of how moving from sort of moving from the axioms rather than starting from the models you don't necessarily, as you're saying with the deracinated subject, you're not necessarily uh, privileging any one sort of a local out- output or sort of local outgrowth of whether it be perception or even whether it be affectivity in Simon Don's sense, which is merely about sort of orienting the subject in a world that can be reified and, and taken as a universal in a false way. But anyway, I, again, I didn't necessarily have a question, just trying to connect some of these things up together, specifically like uh, your, your turn to Simon Don. I did want to ask both of you can, can respond, but this, uh, you know, you have, a, you have a chapter on individuation. You point out Laurel was one to help, I think, bring Simon Don back from Deleuze did, did his work too, and, 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 and how prominent Simon Don sort of filters into his work, but Laruel was the one who edited the 1989 publication that was left out from the 64 publication of his dissertation, the uh, the Psychic and Collective Individuation volume. So Laruel too has this interesting tie-in to sort of bringing Simondon back to the French for study. And then as you pointed out in 94, there was a collection of essays that he has a part in, along with Stiegler and, and other sort of perhaps more more prominent thinkers on this side of the pond. But uh, but yeah, I, I'm wondering about 
you know, you bring in Simon Doan for a number of reasons, one of which is obviously in terms of metastability, you have this working through of, and you bring in Renee Tom for this too, and this working through of questions of discreteness and continuity. And I know for, for Simon Doan himself, he's also thinking about how in the history of, of the notion of the individual throughout philosophy, from even the ancients on up to the 19th century and beyond, you have there's always one side dominating the other, but for him, it's succession versus simultaneity and how those kind of get privileged or, or you know, in a, in a kind of interesting binary. So I'm wondering about the turn to Simondon in, uh, in chapter four and, and perhaps saying something about the, the discrete and the continuous, whether that links up with your mention of Nagarastani and the local and the global in mathematics. You know, there's plenty of, of ways to respond, and I'll just kind of leave it as a springboard for, for either of you. That's a beautiful question. I just remembered actually what uh, I was going to say earlier. I think uh, what Roko was saying about uh, there not being any content to the mathematics is actually something that Wittgenstein said in the Tractatus. Unfortunately, I'm, I feel like I'm starting to get more like analytic pilled or something. Or, uh, <laughs> That's okay. Uh, the stuff with uh, metastability and the local and the global and the discrete and the continuous. Xalame actually points out this, uh, this aporia. That's where I, uh, got it from was uh, between the, the discrete and the continuous. And Tom makes the argument that no, no, I see you in a continuous fashion. Like this must be continuous or something. But then, um, you know, the, uh, mathematician Sir Michael Atia, there's a YouTube video where he's talking about like, is mathematics invented or discovered? And he kind of says, you know, like, well, was it, what was there first? Was there atoms or was there a continuous protoplasm or what, 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 what was the universe made of? I think this is ultimately the, one of the fundamental aporias of any philosophy, I think is just whether you're constructing things. I did take a class at NYU. I took a class with Slavoj Zizek and Avital Renel. And there was, there was one time on the board where we, there was like two different columns. On one side, it said like continuous philosophies and discrete philosophies. It was just like, you know, talking about, you know, Aristotle was, I think, on the continuous side. And then Plato, I think, was on the discrete side. Hmm. And um, I know Tom is linked up with Aristotle very heavily. You know, he's an Aristotelian realist and just kind of thinks about things in terms of there being some higher order explanation that would uh, account for the scientific theory. And this actually caused a debate between um, him and uh, he was either Watson or Crick, where I think as Crick said something like, he said to Rene Tom, like, you don't understand how science works because like <laughs> Rene Tom was saying like, your theory is too um, atomized or, you know, it's, it doesn't account for some higher meta theory. You know, there has to be some some, and then the, oh, the, and now I remember also what I was going to say about uh, what something Rocky said earlier was about um, the fir my first introduction. Actually, now I'm uh, now I really remember the first introduction was Nick Snernick's essay on Larwell. I think that was from a while ago. Do you remember that one or whatever? It was about Neoplatonism in relationship to Larwell or something, and it had like a diagram. But it, it was just about that notion of uh, what I was just thinking about, like when uh, Rocky was talking about opening up the, you know, this, this kind of contentless mathematics to all of these different notions of phenomenology and consciousness and, you know, whatever uh, politics or alienation or what have you, you know, it brings back to this notion of the one or the mind or something, you know, and with Lawwell, you have this, the suspension or the, you know, the, 
the duality as in the physical sense, like you were saying in physics of, you know, the wave particle or of this duality that that allows for the suspension of the sense in that sense of Jean-Luc Nancy, maybe, you know, of, of sense or something. What I found, though, with uh, Larwell is that my friend Matin, who just had a book on uh, urbanomic, was making this point that he was also really into Larwell for a long time. Mm-hmm. But then he, he, he re- had this realization that all this ultimately culminates in this notion of the stranger or something, you know, which is this kind of like, maybe it's even akin to like kind of Baidu's like void or something, you know, this thing that's on the edge or something that is, that is, and I think uh, Nick Snernick had a, like a diagram with it, uh, where it was like the, you have like a, a thought world that you uh, suspend the, uh, the kind of ontological factum, and you're able to clone it. And then I think that uh, Anthony Paul Smith made a remark that he compared uh, in a book, The Stranger to like this song, uh, MIA's uh, Paper Planes or something, that song where like, it's something like across the border, I have no papers in my name. And it was talking about like this kind of notion of like the immigrant or the, you know, and like having being like not being uh, authorized by the state, but also having to like, have this identity that's in suspension of the state or something, you know, and so there's a political element. But then Matin was kind of making this remark that he was worried that the stranger actually ends up in this very like this individualist notion of the subject. And there's a maybe there's a it can be problematic in that sense. Is there a point in which Larwell could converge with like anarcho liberalism or something, you know, and then that scares me sometimes thinking about like how I do said 68 was a false truth event. And that even like, I, I even saw like on the uh, New York Times just the other day, there was this article about Palantir, which is Peter Thiel's right. uh, company. They had this picture of Michel Foucault in their offices. And this is like a counterintelligence. Their research is like trying to figure out, let's say there's a, a lamp or light bulb they're trying to reflect off and determine, you know, who is who's in the room or something. And then it just seems like there was also like a Brooklyn Rail article where they were saying that the overlords have read the theory or something. And like, sometimes I get really uh, terrified about thinking about these things of just like, what's at stake with thinking about cutting edge theory and where can it be uh, co-opted? But uh, yeah, that was a tangent. Back to the the local and the global and the discrete and the continuous. I was thinking about with uh, some philosophies, I feel like if you posit that there is a movement from the continuous to the local or the local to the global, I think Zalame is interested in both directions, kind of a bi-directional movement. My critique of Deleuze was that, you know, this differential calculus, he has it in that chapter, he, he uses the Dedekind cut and also differential calculus. Yeah. And the kind of formalism that's put in place in order to justify the theory is with the Dedekind cut, it's actually this discrete thing that becomes continuous. And then with differential calculus, it's just with the three syntheses of time, you have then the uh, the empirical present, the pure past, and then the uh, the future, which I would, in an artistic sense, I would think of this as kind of the, the visionary experiments of like maybe uh, thinking about acid house or something or something where there is this like the movement from the future into the present is a biological Simondonian actualization. And then that's differentiation with the C, I think. And then uh, the movement from the uh, the second to the third 
is this differentiation with the T, which is related to differential calculus, I think. So then the system that you have set up is basically like if you draw it out or something, you're, you're basically saying that the present is constituted from the future, which is constituted from the past. And the past is the wellspring of which this kind of pure idea or something. And then you have this differentiation that occurs is then from the second to the third is a movement ultimately from differential calculus into the future, into the empirical present or something. And I, uh, that was my critique of Deleuze, which I kind of made this, had the sentence where I was just saying that this kind of sounds like Baidot's clamor being argument, that he's a philosopher of the one or something. Ultimately, any philosophy, you, this distinction between continuous and discrete is really important. If I were to go ahead and uh, write the uh, the treatise, which would actually lay down the foundational system that I did not do, I would argue for this bi-directional movement between local and continuous and continuous and local. Rocky, did you have anything to, to add? I, I wanted to keep it open for you if you if you felt like... Uh... One quick thing adding to, to what Eric just said, that you know the, the last point you made, I, I really beautiful, simple illustration of mm-hmm. that dynamic can be found in uh, Spencer Brown, Calculus of Indications, and also in Peirce, in his his logical graphs, especially just the alpha graphs. Which Wait, is Spencer Brown the guy that Lumen uses or whatever? Exactly. He was an interesting thinker in his own right, developed this very kind of simple algebraic calculus that corresponds to propositional logic, but then develops right. a kind of non-classical logic. But the whole thing originates from this simple imperative to draw a boundary, draw a distinction, right? Right. To distinguish demarcation. To bound to break, break some kind of symmetry. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you can meditate on sort of infinitely that, you know, if you take the plane, right, R2, and then draw a closed curve in the plane, you can think of this as a boundary distinguishing two spaces, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a logical operation but if you take the boundary as cutting out a figure then you immediately tip over into an algebraic frame of thinking Mm -hmm. where you can do one of two things you can either reproduce the figure or you can glue the figure back into its background right reduce figure to ground and thus the figure disappears what seems to me fascinating just with this incredibly simple literally draw a circle in the plane you get the entire problematic of the relation between the discrete and the continuous as it unfolds in the two sort of complementary ways of thinking of mathematical structure, the algebraic and the topological. To divide two spaces is to cut out a figure, and to cut out a figure is immediately to tip over into an operational logic of operate or inverse. You either cut the figure or you close the figure. And it's almost as if from this kind of cosmological, cosmogonic <laughs> instance, right? You know, begin things by drawing a distinction. From mm-hmm. this, everything can be thought to emerge, right? And what I think brings that insight back to someone like Simon Bell is the part of the construction that can easily get lost to view, which is R2, the plane, the background, that you simply can't draw a distinction without there being some space in which you draw it. And that space can be taken to be kind of the, you know, the pure chaos. For for Simon Doan, it's always a structured space, structured Mm -hmm. singularities, but whatever it is, there's always this background 
upon which we make our marks, right? We semiotically operate so as to give rise to these, these various worlds. And it seems to me that that's the point at which philosophy and mathematics sort of touch one another. This, mm-hmm. this fact that both, both originate, right? Both move their form of thinking in an original manner, unlike science. The object of science is taken to be given in advance, right? There's something out there, and then science is going to construct a model with which to know it. Both philosophy and mathematics try to avoid doing that, right? I want to abstract away from the given and somehow go back to the origin. But both of them only go back to the origin by presuming some kind of chaos or field or blank against which they can originate. This is good. Yeah, go ahead, Eric. Oh, I was just thinking about that example. With If you think of like, if you're doing a complex analysis, if you have a curve in the complex plane or something, and if you have a singularity, then if you try to take an integral, you'll get a multiple of 2 pi i. It'll be a multiple of 2 pi i, depending on how many singularities you have. The continuity in, in uh, a topological sense is determined on homotopy classes and like equivalences between whether you can deform uh, one curve or path into another. And if, if there's some hole in there, then immediately you, you enter in this algebraic realm or something. That's really where you, you start thinking about maybe... Uh, homology theory and some things about studying holes and things like the you mentioned the torus being homologous to the the coffee cup in one of your examples i think the homology group of the torus is equivalent to the the homotopy group which is z the cartesian product of z cross z they're equivalent because i believe my professor explained that it was one is an abelianization of uh the the cohomology is abelianization of the homotopy group but uh, this has to do with basically, if you think about it like visually or something, if you think about different ways you can slice a, uh, a donut or something, there's one way where you can slice it like a sandwich or something. And then you have like a, you have a generator, you have a circle where you, if you cut it that way, then you can think about like a circle inside that where that sandwich is. But then you can also slice it vertically, you know, like as if you're taking a bite or something, you know, that's another way to cut it. So then the algebraic the algebraic relationship to the topological the topology is actually related to how many generators you have generators and relations and it's about ways in which you need one infinite cyclic group for the bite and then also infinite cyclic group for cutting it like a sandwich so there's actually there's actually two holes in the uh in a homological sense rather than one hole in a donut because of these different ways of of cutting it and then these correspond to the uh the integers and which is an infinite cyclic group and and also cross the integers which is another infinite cyclic group yeah and i was thinking about what rocky just mentioned with with determination and demarcation and then and sort of dissolving the the form into the ground it it's uh it reminded me of what deleuze starts off in chapter 1 talking about where he says it is a poor recipe for producing monsters to accumulate heteroclite determinations or to overdetermine the animal is better to raise up the ground and dissolve the form. That was something that I know Rocky wasn't necessarily talking about producing monsters, but maybe that that can tie back to your uh, your mention of um, of sort of the the radical formalism of, of horror or something like that, right? Maybe that's just a, a random coincidence. I think all of this is really interesting, and I did want to, I guess, keep moving forward in the uh, in the book by bringing up your turn. I was curious because I'm not exactly sure. But I was curious, and I know Coop was curious too, about this 
bringing in relativity, the question of the speed of light, the Minkowski diagrams. I wanted to know a little bit more about what was uh, for you important to bring in Einstein in, I believe it's chapter five, and talking about these different things and maybe how that relates to some of the overall arc of your book. Actually, I took a class on uh, non-Euclidean geometry at uh, NYU, where we used uh, the Erlangen program to uh, study non-Euclidean geometry and cosmic topology. And we were studying the hyperbolic models. There's several models that were all discovered by uh, Boyai, I I don't know how to say it, Hungarian mathematician Boyai. What I found interesting about all these models is that you know, let's say you have Euclidean geometry, you have R2, R3, Rn, whatever, you have kind of a notion of infinite space. And, you know, you can, with a lot of the non-Euclidean models, you have this thing called a compactification of some kind of line at infinity or a point at infinity. And this is what allows for, this is what Einstein kind of terms as the kind of the fastest thing possible in the universe, which is the speed of light. So this is actually a physical, this is an imposition of a physical absolute upon the universe at least space-time relativity, at least special relativity, you know, this is a notion in which there is in a, in a non-Euclidean geometry, you would have a, uh, you would have a, uh, if you had like, you know, the Klein disk or something, then the boundary would be, would be this line at infinity or something. In the Minkowski model, this is actually where the, the boundary of the light cone, where, you know, you have uh, C, you know, and uh, this is just a way in which you relativize things because, everything is relative to then this, your initial frame with respect to the the speed of light or something. This is perhaps one of the things I was thinking about when when reading your your section on Einstein relativity was one of Larwell's, uh, one of the things that he brings up, which is kind of akin to your notion of one of the reasons why you you bring Larwell up in your book, right, is to to pursue this deontologization. He also has a a term, a first term that he brings up in in his dictionary, and I know in his work in the 80s, which is called Time Without Temporality. I'm wondering, Rocky, did that show up in the Philosophies of Difference book, like around Heidegger, or am I imagining this kind of thing? But it feels like it it fits the theme of your work, Eric, this notion of a time without temporality, uh, which, you know, which philosophy tends to kind of blend time and temporality together, whether it be, as you brought up with Deleuze's three ecstasies or three syntheses, Heidegger's three ecstasies, this kind of blending and and this sort of ongoing question of whether eternity is in time or outside time, blah, blah, blah. It's very relevant. I think of like the uh, the notion of hypothesizing the continuum or something, and this may be important for Paris or something that, you know, the, having the uh, the different relations of you know, firstness, secondness, and thirdness, pikeism versus cynicism or something. And I think that with some philosophies, they uh, hypothesize this continuum and something. And I was making this argument that everything is relative to something that is like speed or, but I mean, uh, Ravenna, my friend Ravenna wrote uh, an afterward in the book, Ravenna Hunt Hendricks. She made this criticism where I don't actually account for, um, I don't account for thermodynamics at all. Sometimes I find it, uh, I actually get have uh, experienced some horror myself, where I think about some some of this kind of Boltzmann brain experiment, where I think about is the universe merely just a? uh, This seems to be 
when physicists are trying to make a uh, make a new model or something, they have to they have a they have the, some kind of litmus test for to ensure that it's plausible the physical theory, and they usually compare it to the Boltzmann brain experiment, which basically suggests that there's a the statistical probability that the universe is that a brain was born in the vacuum is more likely than the Big Bang occurring or something. But then it supposes that time is infinite for this to happen. But then you know with leading theories and multiverse, you know, or uh, I think I was even watching a, a lecture with uh, Roger Penrose, he was just suggesting that he thinks that the Big Bang wasn't the beginning. And if there is this kind of notion of an infinite time or something, then what's there to say that this sounds kind of uh, sci-fi horror or something, but there could be an undertone to all of this about some horror or something. Poop, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I do know that you, you've taken notes and you've got some things here that we could, we could jump off of. I, I, I would love for for us to to springboard off of of some something you you've got here which i know you've got pages and pages of notes <laughs> but um you know feel free to sure to sort of i'm just kind of curious eric and then rucko if you have a response please feel free to share but just a broad general question would be have you come across anything in terms of reading that you would suggest relative to computer science from the perspective of continental philosophy i was looking for Deleuze related things relating to computer science, develop programming, et cetera, if you've come across anything that you would recommend taking a look at, just for my own interest. Well, I was just thinking of uh, Reza's book on intelligence and spirit. He comes up with construct the constructive computationalism was directly alluding to uh, Reza's work. I'm primarily interested in uh, learning about functional programming languages. Let me give you a little bit of background. So I have, I'm not a developer. I'm not a mathematician. I'm pretty terrible at actually doing equations and and doing the act like physically coding and things like that but conceptually i really enjoy i mean even something like statistics i think the conceptual realm of that is just like i thought it was fascinating so i do have a little bit of experience programming in c just very cursory experience so i don't know just thinking taylor and i obviously have been looking at logic of sense we've been looking at difference in repetition and i mean the differential calculus etc so i don't know this sort of mathematics has been sort of top of mind lately. And um, just thinking about setting up variables and functions and all of that sort of thing, repetitions, series, et cetera. Like, I think there's so much that could lend itself to an analysis, but you know, it's, it's difficult to find. So I was just curious. I think you had Simon Duffy on uh, the podcast. We have. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I have that book on uh, Deleuze and the history of uh, mathematics. And then uh, where he analyzes, uh, and oh, there, I have a really good book that uh, Thomas Murphy recommended to me. Uh, I think it's called Philosophy of Geometry from uh, Riemann to Poincaré. I think that's the one. That one's like probably the best book I could think of thinking about philosophy in relationship to uh, mathematics. Just a general comment. There's so little out there that's making connections between continental philosophy and mathematics. I mean, there are some things, but for the most part, it's with the exception of maybe people like Zalamea, to a certain extent, Simondon, Deleuze, some of the secondary literature on Deleuze, a lot of the stuff coming from the continental philosophy towards mathematics, it doesn't do a lot that's interesting mathematically. And right. the mathematics, as Eric was suggesting, often is just completely indifferent to Right, yeah, but I think exactly. one thing you can do, given your, your background, by picking the right mathematical topics and simply reading them with someone like Deleuze in mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. often can be an extraordinary experience. One book that I think is a, a fantastic book, kind of in set theory and, and theories of recursion, it's called Vicious 
circles by hmm. I'm pretty sure it's Barwise and Moss. It's a relatively it's I don't know it's thirty years old or something, but it focuses on on streams and uh, axels, non well founded universe, basically structures that include themselves, and they run through a whole bunch of examples, and it's all you know perfectly formal, mathematical, wonderful stuff. If you read a text like that with certain ideas from continental philosophy in the back of your mind, it's as if it becomes the table of contents for a book. There's like a virtual book of philosophy lurking behind the mathematics. And by actually working through the mathematics in detail, the philosophy is what comes into focus. That sometimes just by doing the math, the philosophical insights come for free. Yeah, I was thinking about something, perhaps maybe a book you know, just to be broad would be like a philosophy of computer science. You know what I mean? Because I think I've never heard of anyone that's really thought about what is going on conceptually with development, with programming, et cetera, with the machine. You know, I think that's fascinating. I can't remember what generate, what sort of original thought that I had relative to this question, but well, uh, it's been something I I've think, been thinking about lately. Well, I think personally, uh, I, I get really excited thinking about these uh, questions and going back to the kind of foundations of computer science. And then you have really, when you had like, um, you know, Alan Turing was at Princeton and he was in a mathematics department with Alonzo Church and Alonzo Church invented the Lambda calculus. These questions of computability and, you know, can it pass the Turing test and um, the Entscheidung's problem, which was Hilbert's problem. All of these questions all come back to logical problems due to the incompleteness theorem. So you could really think about things for questions of computability come back to uh, questions of whether or not this is a, uh, a formalized system with the piano arithmetic. Is, is it uh, complete, consistent, or uh, you know, sound? Or uh, is there something independent of that system? Which goes back to what Rocky was saying about Cohen's work you know, with forcing, which was shown to, to prove the, the in independence of the, uh, I think, the continuum hypothesis. And the external choice. Oh, sorry, sorry. I no, both, both, both of those. Oh, they're both independent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But Rocky could say more about that since he's read uh, Cohen's work line by line. Forcing is just a, an amazing, it's a beautiful thing. And one of the things I think is fascinating is that, you know, the entire construction of forcing depends upon the existence of countable models for set theory, which the original result was almost a kind of reductio ad absurdum. The whole point of developing set theory was to have a unique foundation for constructing all of mathematics, which to be sure includes things that are you know, non-countable sets right. of the reals, for example. And so here's this theorem at Lovenheim that there exist countable models of set theory. You know, the downward, I think that's the, you know, the downward Lovenheim that, you know, if a model exists, then a countable model exists. And also models of effectively any cardinality exist. Mm. So there are infinitely many non-isomorphic models for Zermelo-Frankel axioms of set theory, which almost right then destroyed the whole program. It's like the whole idea was we'd create these axioms that would give us one fixed world of sets where we could do mathematics. It turns out there are a whole bunch of worlds that are totally non-isomorphic with one another. And then the whole technique of forcing depends on using this sort of base level model, accountable model, and arranging things, constructing things, you know, in a kind of subtle way inside constructible models so that you can then join structures 
that are kind of, you know, arbitrary based on, on what it is that you want to be true. And I think that's what Badiou finds so exciting in, in Cohen's work. And I think Badiou is, is right about this, is the way that the very technique of forcing is immediately philosophical. It's something that you wouldn't a priori think is possible. It's only because Cohen was able to do it that then reflecting upon the, the fact that it is real, the fact that you can, that you can actually produce in a sense, arbitrary models of axiomatic set theory that you can then, from a philosophical point of view, see that because forcing is something that can be done, that must be something like what we do when we think in a certain kind of creative mode. It's a reflective image of the kind of thinking we do, but we wouldn't even be able to imagine that image did we not have it in front of us in a formal register, right? proving it to us, and then we can sort of recognize it. I think there's still a lot to be thought through just in, in set theory in terms of, you know, what does it mean to be creating a foundation for mathematics that also, in a certain sense, is open upwards in terms of the models that can be constructed and the, and the you know, the, the unending sequence of these large cardinals and super large cardinals. It's as if mathematics wants to find foundations but as soon as the foundations are fixed in the right way, it actually just opens up a bigger space for us to build things. Interesting, because I was just thinking about someone was sending me something about my friend uh, in New York was sending me something about Bideau's use of ordinals, which is this ordinal theory. I think von Neumann has this notion of ordinals, which is you basically have either, well, with the transfinite, you have you just keep taking the power set and you get a larger infinity or something. But then with, you know, piano arithmetic, you have, you have a successor function and you, uh, you take from the empty set, you take the successor function of that. And then you have the, the set of the empty set, the set of the empty set with the, with a set of the empty set. And you just keep adjoining a set, another set. There's different ways to do it, but there's the simplest way that I was shown was if you have the, the empty set, that's zero. And then you take a curly brace around that that's and with the empty set you call that one you take another curly brace and two curly braces around the empty set that's two and this is a way for constructing the uh, natural numbers but then uh, with this ordinal stuff is like thinking about doing this uncountable universe is this way of starting with something countable and then having a i think with ordinal i think Bido you talks about what is the lowest philosophical ordinal or something he, he refers to that as as something important or something i think maybe that uh philosophically that could correspond to if i'm not wrong is that the void or something or for set theory at least as far as i understand it with with how badu uses it at least mathematically the void is is sort of uh the foundation for for sets right in terms of the empty set right belonging to, to like everything yeah. yeah right and i guess in in terms of uh you know coop's question about philosophy and computer science i'm sure there are textbooks and collections of essays on there but you know rocky you get kind of close to some of this at least abstractly with your your book on diagrammatic eminence i would think in terms of incorporating category theory into it. I mean, it's it's not computer science per se, but in terms of the manipulation of or the thinking through of some of these aspects, I would feel it, it would kind of, you know, I might plug your book for for Cooper and I to to read together. 
I mean, you know, it's Rocky, a great title. <laughs> Amazing Rocky, title. Should do, Rocky should do an episode uh, by himself. I know that years ago, uh, I invited him to come on once we finished this project. So maybe maybe after we're, we're done with our project, we'll we'll have you back, Rocky, and you can you can talk okay. about it. But, but you talk about some of the thinkers that Coop and I are, are both interested in, including Purse, who's someone that, as you know, was uh, really important for Guattari. And, and Guattari's got... In terms of uh, diagrams, he's got some of uh, some of the wackiest out there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely, the paper that I wrote just um, earlier this year. This is stuff I've been I've been thinking about quite a bit. Is abductive inference mm. for AI? So I wrote a paper about the problem machine learning, basically back the method of backpropagation in neural networks. Right, very powerful, and, and I think now most neural networks use various kinds of layered backpropagation. It's more sophisticated, but it's basically the same thing. You have kind of randomly weighted sequences of these, these neural layers. You run data through with some sort of target output. You know, you're very unlikely to get it on the first pass, but you then can step-by-step step move backwards through the layers, adjust the weights according to this kind of gradient descent algorithm that's going to guarantee that each time you run through, the result is going to be at least marginally closer to your target. Interesting. So if you run it through enough, eventually you'll get something that can pick, you know, the cat photographs out of the... And what I was interested in the paper is the way that this does seem to be a kind of abductive inference, a kind of hypothesis formation, a kind of learning taking okay. place within the neural network. But it does depend on the trainer. Someone has to provide the output data that's the target. And yet... These things are able to do what seem to be modes of reasoning that can certainly amplify and supplement human modes of reasoning. I think one of the most interesting open problems for computer science is not just the inner architecture or, or internal problems of how to make this stuff work, but the, the actual social and political problem of what protocols do we put into place for the interaction of human and AI communities when they're working together on various kinds of abductive reasoning. Just one little trivial example, but it's, it's you know something that's popped up in the news recently, the, the question in San Francisco as to whether robot police should okay. be given the right to use lethal force, which, you know, on the, on the one hand, it's just sort of terrifying dystopian question, but it's also the kind of question that is not going to go away. These technologies that are given certain degrees of decision-making and hypothesis-forming duties, within what kinds of legal and juridical frameworks are we going to place those decisions in relation to the kinds of human decision-making that has been the standard up till now? When we think about automating these things, that's too simple a model because the most interesting forms of automation are automation of processes that mimic creativity, guesswork, you know, reasoning under uncertain premises, right? And so it's as soon as we, as soon as we allocate the kinds of thinking tasks that are more human, right? And that's more fallible, more mistake-laden, it's when we allocate those tasks to computers that we run into actually more problems. Right. Actually just program them to do what we want them to do. I wanted to say something because I, I have a new paper that I'm working on 
and I wanted to share my screen. Is that cool? Or I will say, uh, Rocky, just I know that the word shows up in your book, Eric, the term abduction, but for I guess for the listener and just for for my own sanity too, to make sure I understand this. Rocky, do you do you have a maybe a, a quick, concise definition or or how you see abduction in, in purse? I mean, in a sense, he invented the concept. You know, traditionally logicians distinguish deductive and inductive reasoning. Right. So deductive reasoning takes some premises. The relation between the premises is such that some conclusion necessarily follows. Whereas inductive reasoning gets some kind of probabilistic conclusion on the basis right. of you know, typically a, a sequence of similar types of premises that, that are then generalized to a possible conclusion. And the logical form that Peirce introduces as abduction, he says, some surprising event takes place. So, so call it E. E takes place and is surprising. But if A were true, then E would be a matter of course. Okay. Therefore, okay. there is some reason to suspect that A might be true. Interesting. What's fascinating about abduction is if you think of it as positing a hypothesis, such mm-hmm. that if the hypothesis were true, the given phenomenon would be explained. Gotcha. Unlike both deduction and induction, it's the one form of logical inference that actually produces something new in the conclusion that isn't present in the hypotheses. Gotcha. So if I, if I see six ducks and they all quack, I might conclude inductively all ducks quack. But the right. notion of quacking is actually given experientially in the premises, in the data. Right. But if I say ducks are trying to communicate, and, and okay, explain why they quack, the concept of communication has to be imported from some other domain. Communication isn't found in any of the premises. It isn't found in the data. It's what I add to the data to make the data make sense. And that's why I first thought that this abduction is is essential to kind of living reasoning, because it's the part of reasoning that actually generates new things. It's the novelty in inference. One of the reasons why I I asked and why I like this is because you know, Simon Don does something interesting as well when he introduces the notion of transduction, which, you know, in French is very close to our word for translation. It's sort of a, a similar type of etymology going on. But for, you know, for him, transduction would also be something more, obviously for him, he, he, he needs this term to explain both individuation and to counter the sort of classical framework of the hylomorphic theory where you, you know, adding a form to a matter gives us an entity. And, you know, for him, transduction is about sort of how disparate levels can sort of mediate together. And this is why he sort of contrasts it with both deduction and induction and thinks of it as a more creative process. So I think there's a kind of analogy going on with Peirce's abduction. I'm not sure if I ever see Simon Don talking about Peirce, but I would be surprised if he wasn't at least somewhat familiar with, uh, with this stuff. Okay, cool. So this is a, a new work that I just came up with actually just on Sunday. And uh, this is actually something similar to what Rocky was talking about, about this question of like, I'm thinking about uh, intuition and AGI, AI, and... Um, how do we deal with all of these 
humanitarian or ethical or what have you issues when, you know, AGI, AI is, has more than sentience, but sapience or something. So this diagram, what I was, I'm working on this collaboratively with a friend, Dana Dawood. And um, what you have here is you have a, uh, I was thinking of actually like two different forces. You can draw an analogy to uh, Apollinian and Dionysian or something. It could be something about maybe even like Holderlin's The Open or something versus some kind of closure. Or I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Gerald Donald, who was in the electro group Drexia. And this is like a post-Gerald Donald world is on the uh, left side. Helena Hoff is also a, an electro musician. And she, uh, in an interview, said that she had studied physics, but that she switched to uh becoming a DJ and then found that didn't believe in any kind of superstition and only believed that, you know, intuition was only possible within music or some kind of this kind of expressive kind of individuation was only possible within music. So then this is a hypothetical situation here where I'm suggesting that you have Gerald Donald from Drexia was really into mythopoeia. And you can see here, uh, it says that Drexia's James Stinson, Gerald Donald remain hidden behind their alias for much of the group's existence, communicating a complex personal mythology of a Drexian race of underwater dwellers descended from pregnant slave women thrown overboard during transatlantic deportation. Within this fiction, their music, which they claimed was recorded live in the studio rather than programmed, was imagined as a dimensional jump hole between the Black African roots and the contemporary USA. And then um, what you have here is a, a direct sum. And what I was thinking is that why it has to be a direct sum is that they're both a direct sum can be uh, when you have two subspaces of a vector space, the direct sum is disjoint. I mean, the, the, the two subspaces, let's say you have uh, a subspace alpha and a subspace beta, then their intersection is empty, they're disjoint. So what, what you have here is I'm suggesting is that at the top, I would say is the Vey conjectures, which were, which was Simone Vey's brother, Andre Vey. He was a mathematician that was at the Institute for Advanced Study for a long time. And he famously postulated this analog to the Riemann hypothesis while he was detained for fleeing the war and he was put into prison and he came up with these vague conjectures. This was what Grothendieck and Sarah and Deline to develop all the heavy machinery actually behind this book that we're talking about, my book, is all this work in topos theory and atalco homology and stuff with all in order to tackle the issue of the vague conjectures. I would situate this as a kind of upper bound because this was actually what was needed for the proof of Fermat's last theorem by Andrew Wiles. And this what I would say is this kind of notion that, that, you know, Hardy makes the claim that, you know, mathematics should be, real mathematics should be completely useless. If it's any way has an application or is engineering or something, then this is this uninteresting or something. The true aesthetic beauty would be something that is completely useless. He had a lot of contempt for anything besides pure mathematics. What I'm trying to say with the diagram is, I don't know if, if it makes sense to you, Rocky, but what I'm suggesting is that from Gerald Donald Force which is this more about this, there's a morphism to constructing houses and building houses. And in Grothendieck's sense, in his Recolte et Simmel. And then from the, the Helena Hofforce, you have this, this vase grace, which is on the, the opposite side. This is actually about, you know, in Gravity and Grace, you have everything is physics except for the exception, which is just grace. That's the suspension of the physics. So on the one hand, you have this Gerald Donald force, like, constructing axiomatic structures and trying to make things world building, building houses, building things. And then this is, you know, abiding by uh, the 
hypothetical deductive method of, of constructing things in an intuitive way. And I would make this connection to making this total work of art, which is can act as a conceptually can have power in a political fashion. Or I think he, in this interview, he says, music is a communicative, communicative medium to represent concepts of any kind, political or otherwise. And then on the other hand, you have this, this grace morphism, which is actually then this kind of suspension of the thing that, that is the exception to the physics here. I, I have it. All the natural movements of the soul are controlled by laws analogous to those of physical gravity. Grace is the only exception. Gravity, grace fills empty spaces, but it can only enter where there is a void to receive it. And it is grace itself, which makes this void. And then their uh, their direct sum is actually then where I would situate Zalamea's notion in his book. In the beginning, he talks about real and ideal. And the ideal is maybe that maybe ma mathematical theories are merely mental constructions. And this is this intuitionist idea. And then real is that they're, let, maybe let, let's bestow some ontology onto these structures or something that they are actually existent or something. This combination between this building axiomatic structures, which are are um, maybe lack a certain applicative potency. They don't have potency in terms of applications. That would maybe be more this kind of possibly intuition, intuitionistic or something. And then on the gray side, you have this reality of this kind of, you could make an argument that in their direct sum, it, it could go both ways. There's something inherently spiritual about the gray side. And there's some building houses, is something rather constructive or uh, rational. And then on the bottom you have here, Amorphism. This is actually the philos term I got from Rocky's talk at the conference from last Saturday, which was about the master and slave in uh, Plato's text. And and then you have this morphism of the structural foundation, the Husserlian Rookfrage, which is the question back at the foundation, constantly questioning back what are the foundations of thinking. Or I mean, this is this would obviously lead uh, Heidegger into uh, you know what is called thinking. I think the Rookfrage. That's my opinion. And then you have then from this, this other morphism, this Lacanian materialism, which is something about interphilos, you have something about desire and silence and lack and all of these big questions that deal with how do you construct friendship? And then friendship can be through, I explain it rather abstractly, but to summarize it, what I'm thinking here is that when you're thinking about AGI or AI or something, you have in computation, you have the hardcore formalism, right? You can you can look at computability or something or lambda calculus or, you know, lambda calculus is equivalent to Turing's logic. There is some kind of hardcore formalism or axiomatics that lays the groundwork for the development of computer science or something. So I would say that this is maybe, this is for me, I'm suggesting this is possibly a solution to effectively thinking about if we say that the ideal of, of the last, you know, whatever, since the 90s was Fermat's last theorem, and this was the, the most beautiful number theorem ever proven in the, you know, history of mathematics, this is some upper bound for what is axiomatizable or something. And then on the bottom, have here this, the poet engineer's morphism, which is directly tied to Reza's work on thinking about how do we make things, thinking about Plato's craftsmanship, how do we construct things, how do we build things, how do we make things. And this goes back to computation and computability. This diagram is actually a reflection of from the top to the bottom, it's a reflection of one another, because on the, the top half, you're, you have all these, you have all these kind of axiomatics and grace and spiritual and physical notions, right? But then on the bottom half, you have all these notions of very, very practical, applicative notions, such as 
engineering things, trying to create applications. And then what are the ways that you do that? Well, then you have to think about friendship and a community of AI or a community of AI, which have maybe possibly an unconscious, which is the Lacan notion. And then also you you have to think about the notions of going back to the foundations of the AI or whatever, and and thinking about the Alonzo Church thesis or something of this is the standard thesis for putting forth computability. And yeah, I just wanted to share this. Feel free to take this image if you want to, so it's not confusing to people who are listening. Yeah, I just took a screenshot of it. I'm sending it to to Coop. That way we can add it to the the line notes of this episode. And it looks like that you've actually segued us to kind of the outro, Eric, you're kind of telling us a little bit about what you're working on now and what your future work is. I do think perhaps unless someone else has something to say, I I would like Rocky, you can kind of tell us about some of the things you're working on. You mentioned a a paper you just finished, but uh, what do you have in the horizon of your your research? This last six months or so has been a nice kind of hiatus. I was on sabbatical the year before last because it was COVID time wanted to travel a bunch, didn't get the chance to do traveling that I was wanting to do, but it mm-hmm. meant as a compensatory mechanism, I was able to get a lot of work done because I didn't have anything else to do except go up to the attic and write every day. So I wrote a bunch of stuff. That stuff is sort of trickling out or has been trickling out over the past year and a half. I'm actually very excited working with John Luca, Katarina, and Fernando Tomei. The three of us submitted a proposal to the uh, Synthes Library for a book on autopoiesis. And so that's, if that comes through, the idea there, you know, this is the problem that we've worked on for quite a while, this, this idea of structures that make themselves in some sense. Right. Into problems of biochemistry, but also in mathematics, various kinds of self-referential structures, you know, you might even think of like girdle numbering and girdle incompleteness. There are all these problems of self-reference that are, in many ways, kind of formal analogs of this kind of material problem of processes that construct conditions for the reproduction of the process. And so what we'd like to do is in category theory to kind of generalize this host of different problems that that, can be formal self-reference, you know, problem of life, physical processes, and find a categorical framework that would sort of give relationally a characterization of the kind of thing that happens that actually sort of extracts the essence of autopoiesis. There are a couple of kind of leads that we have there. That's a project I think that'll take us a couple of years. And uh, there are always like little, little things floating around here and there. Also just very excited these days to do a lot of reading and learning into Indian philosophy recently. And it's such a fantastic moment for world philosophy right now if you just, you know, stay open to the stuff that's being published, that there are so many texts have been translated. There are so many great scholars out there, stuff coming from Chinese philosophy, Indian philosophy, and, you know, a lot of the the kind of mistakes that were made in that original round of translations that often came out of Max Müller and 19th century Germans. Right. Just a much better place to really learn what some of those different traditions were actually doing. And, you know, the Western tradition just has so much to learn and also so much to give in this this new world of a kind of planetary philosophy where the different traditions, I think, can supplement one another. For me, it's just fun to be able to have access to this stuff and read it and think about it and find other people maybe that are out there to talk to. 
I feel like we we've we've covered a lot of ground. Obviously, we we couldn't exhaust your work, Eric, but I, I think it was nice to be able to delve into some of the components that went into it. And so I know that you said you may not write the actual treatise, but I'm sure with what you're working on, this will inform your future work. And so it it gives it kind of gives gives food for thought. I want to thank both of you for coming on. Rocky, I know we'll uh we'll set up some dates once you're free, once you're done grading, I assume, or or whatever it is you have to do. And so we'll be speaking again soon. Eric, we'll definitely be exchanging thoughts via Twitter like we have in the past. Thank you for having me on. And if you ever just want to have a Zoom call, just uh, kick it or, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's that's great. And I, again, I, I'm glad that, that both of you were able to make time today and, and to kind of you know, teach us about stuff. Again, this, this is one of the nice things about having a variety of guests on, you know, because this is stuff that I know I'm not well versed in. And so it's nice to, to be able to sort of force perhaps the other side of my brain, the more, again, the analytic mathematical side to uh, to be exposed to these these kinds of things. Thanks so much for inviting us. Yeah, it was great great to meet you, Cooper. And yeah, yeah likewise. Again, Taylor. Yeah, yeah, nice to meet you, Cooper. Again, Eric. Yeah, thanks to both of you enjoyed the book, enjoyed the conversation. Did anybody have any last thoughts aside from that? If not, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll wrap up this week's episode of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. Thanks to Eric and Rocco for joining us. Cheers, everyone. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.